Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled. It's where we break down scientific concepts and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Kathleen Masterson. And I'm Paul Boger. Last episode, we talked about um, challenges from the lack of diversity in the healthcare field. And Mm -hmm. we looked specifically at some um, patient experiences that had had struggles um, because there wasn't uh, a person who spoke their language in the in the field. Right. So one of the things that we definitely wanted to do is talk to a dermatologist who has noticed this lack of diversity in their field. Um, unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, we weren't able to get that interview, but we did the reschedule. And I think it's a, a really important voice to have in this great, greater conversation about diversity in healthcare. So we were able to have a follow-up conversation with Dr. Oma Abai, She's a dermatologist and director of the Service for Multicultural Dermatology and Hair Loss Disorders at UC Davis. Dermatology is one of the least diverse fields in medicine. Um, Stats that I found show that approximately 3% of dermatologists in the U.S. are black um, and about 4% are Hispanic. Why do you think it's so important to increase diversity of skin colors in practitioners uh, in the field of dermatology? You know, patients like to identify with their doctors, and I think it's very important to have doctors who represent the patient population in the area that the doctors are treating because I think that it really does promote a sense that a patient has a, a place in a certain health system and, and um, has a chance of feeling more validated. And, and any doctor of any color can excellently treat any patient of any color. And, um, even with that, I think that patients do look to doctors as um, as a, a source of identification and validation, and I think that's really important. I get a ton of feedback from patients saying that um, they really appreciate seeing me as a doctor of color um, and that they feel that their conditions and, and what they're um, experiencing are, are possibly better understood because of that. That doesn't have to be the case, but I have gotten a lot of feedback with that regard. We know that some conditions present differently in darker skin, and they might sometimes go unnoticed or misdiagnosed. How can that be a real health risk? There are a lot of potential issues with diagnosing serious skin conditions late in certain skin types, specifically, I think of melanoma. So historically, melanomas in someone of African descent are diagnosed later. And because of that, the melanoma, a skin cancer that can be life-threatening, it has progressed further and has a higher chance of morbidity and even mortality. And then there are other skin conditions. I mentioned psoriasis, um, disorders of hyperpigmentation. There are so many different reasons for skin to appear darker than normal. I have had patients with hyperpigmentation disorders that were diagnosed um, as as different conditions um, before I saw them. So, So it's important to have doctors who have trained in these um, areas to understand skin of color so that all patients of all skin types can get equal, um, excellent care. Do you think that we have adequate training in the field of dermatology for for people to sort of be on the lookout uh, for those disorders? I think that we need more training for dermatology residents. Um, Historically, I do believe it has been been insufficient, but there have been some amazing leaders in dermatology and dermatologic research, and specifically in skin of color dermatology, 
who have really paved the way um, with regards to raising awareness on on these issues and, and these skin conditions. And, and the textbooks have been written and a lot of interesting research is going on. And this is something that is gaining in awareness, thankfully. Um, but historically, you're absolutely right. There has been a lack in education in that area. What's a specific example of one thing a dermatologist might not know to look for? Uh, melanomas are not as commonly diagnosed in people of color, so there may be a lack of um, of awareness or just kind of a, a lack of being able to have that at the forefront of one's consciousness as a doctor. Although it is a much lower risk than of the Caucasian population, there is a risk. It's generally seen in areas where the sun doesn't shine in patients of color, specifically in patients of African descent. So that would be places like on the palms and on the soles of the feet. Say, okay, this is um, a patient of color. They came in for this issue. Well, let me just check their feet and their hands to make sure they don't have any issues, you know, any neoplasms that need a biopsy. That might not be something that a doctor would do unless they are aware that patients of color, specifically of African descent, are more likely to have melanomas in those areas if they do have them. From your experience, having gone through med school and now practicing dermatologists, what are the solutions? How do we improve diversity in the field of dermatology? Well, we definitely need more mentorship. You know, we need more dermatologists especially dermatologists who are in academic institutions, reaching out to medical students and trying to form more mentorship relationships with medical students earlier in the game. We also need more dermatologists of color serving on selection committees for medical school students, so admissions committees um, for medical school admissions. And I think having a prospective medical student being interviewed by a dermatologist of color can really plant that idea of, oh, okay, well, here's a dermatologist who kind of looks like me and they're a dermatologist and maybe that's something that I can do too. So I think just being involved and reaching out more for mentorship is one big thing and and um, continuing to advance in the areas of research in, in skin of color diseases and, and having dermatologists speak about these conditions and educate other doctors. And so more people are um, able to serve patients well on the other end because patients, you know, also can become doctors, right? Like a lot of times when when I am interviewing um, residency applicants for dermatology, they say, oh yeah, you know, I wanted to become a dermatologist because when I was a kid, my sister had this dermatology condition and we had a wonderful dermatologist. So I think on both ends, reaching out to medical students university students, as well as providing excellent care to patients of all skin colors can really hopefully improve um, and increase the interest in dermatology. You know, on this podcast, I think one of the things that we do fairly well is we try to maybe pull back the lens a little bit and and maybe look at these topics from the 30,000-foot view, right? Or at least that's that's something that I try to do. <laughs> I think we, we get there. In I think we get there roundabout, right? <laughs> um, and one of the things I wanted to take a look at is just the science of diversity in general. So I reached out to Dr. Mona Sue Weismark. She's a clinical and social psychologist 
whose work focuses on diversity and justice in particular. And she's also a visiting professor of psychology at Harvard and the author of the upcoming book, The Science of Diversity. I spoke to her about how when we often think about diversity, we're not seeing the whole picture or we're thinking about it in the wrong way. Dr. Weismark, you've made a career out of studying diversity and justice. I'm curious to get your take on, I guess, the concept of diversity as we know it today. I think it's there's a history, let's say going back until the 1960s, that corporate America felt that they started to have to begin diversity training programs. And in part, I mean, now that's a $10 billion or more business. They had to focus on compliance, on, on legal requirements, and avoiding lawsuits. So when people think of diversity to this day, they think of what began in the 1960s, this compliance diversity training, uh, which really had this um, legal focus and more of some people call it the check off box approach. And then there would be mandatory diversity trainings, again, all with the focus on compliance and legal requirements. And I think diversity became a big word then. And then there was this agenda, the notion that, okay, um, we have to get our managers in corporate America to appreciate diversity. I'd say then in the 70s and 80s, that kind of diversity training went a little bit into sensitivity training. And now not only are we going to comply with the law, we're going to get force I think is mandatory have people uh, take these trainings so they're sensitive to it. I'm not criticizing this, by the way. I'm just describing how you asked how did you know diversity become popular, so to speak. And so I think it was more institutionalized, so to speak. So how should we be looking at these sorts of issues? If you're really focused on the science of diversity method, you're focused on teaching people to take conflicting findings and make sense of them and evaluate the information and judge the information. And that's very different from cherry picking. So, and this is really helpful in our society today where so many topics are polarized. And for example, just take if you look at the topic of discrimination, and I'm giving you one example, the Pew did some studies looking at polarized views of a sample about 8,000 random people. And they found, for example, if you ask Americans, how many of, what do you think about discrimination? Um, does it really sort of exist when it comes to discrimination? And you'll find polarized opinions, Republicans just using political parties, but they've done it in many topics, about 80% of Republicans say people who say they're discriminated against are exaggerating. They're seeing it where it doesn't exist. The other hand, the exact same number, 70, about 78% of Democrats say um, the problem is people do not recognize discrimination can take so many topics like this and show the polarization. So what we do in our classes and in our consultations is we take these kind of polarizing topics, we teach people the method of thinking scientifically and that enables them to evaluate both 
sets of information. Most of the time, though, we're talking about some very deeply held, ingrained beliefs. You know, where do these biases come from? That really begins, believe it or not, at birth. There's biological evidence that we become very attached to what's familiar to us, beginning in the womb, to the voice of our mothers. Uh, You know, there's been studies done showing that we have a preference for our mother's voice versus the stranger's voice. Now that, and that just develops. We have attachments. We have needs. We want to belong. We know this is very important. And then we're, we have an identity. It's not just some personal background <laughs> with objective facts. That personal background comes from your family and informs your views and beliefs. And so we become very attached to that. All the great scientists, Feynman, Einstein, Marie Corre, they kept emphasizing that it's that the scientific way of thinking is so important because it allows one to gain awareness into their own thinking. If you're able, if you use scientific thinking, um, you 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 have to see both hypotheses in your mind to move forward. So let's take gender. Let's assume you're gay, for example, and you think, and you think uh, if uh, gay marriages are just are great and just and gay parents can be just as effective or better as gay parents, right? And you have strong emotions about that because your identity is wrapped up with being gay. It would be very hard for you to have a conversation with someone who says, you know what, I think gay parents do not make good parents. What we would do in in class or in our consultations is actually look at the conflicting studies. There are a lot of studies that have examined this question. And mostly in psychology, studies have conflicting findings. It is very hard. Sometimes maybe there's been 90 studies and they all agree, but generally they conflict. So how do you make sense of both sets of data? And having people be able to evaluate the Information, the conflicting data helps, back to your question again, to, for you to become aware more of your emotional response. In your work, how have you been able to get these, I guess, diametrically opposed groups together? And, and what are the results of these conversations? The studies that I did looked at polarized groups. And exactly to your point, groups that have a history and memories and legacies that inform their views. And we looked at what happens when you bring these groups together. It's no different than looking at any other polarized groups, Democrats and and, Republicans, conservatives and liberals. In our case, we looked at polarized groups in the sense that they were polarized, um, historically speaking, right? Children of survivors and children of Nazis, children of slaves, descendants of slaves and descendants of slave owners, where the emotional legacy is, is really great. And then we looked at how is that legacy transmitted? How do they form these strong opinions about the other? And could they, in the presence of the other, hear the other side? In this case, we weren't teaching them the scientific method, right? They didn't have the tools that we have now to teach people to have polarized discussions. 
but we were just looking from a research point of view. What happens when you bring them together? Can they see the other side? To what, to what extent do their emotional backgrounds, legacies, personal histories influence their views of the others? And I'm sure you're not gonna be surprised to hear that it had a tremendous impact in being able to have an open dialogue and hearing the other. Even many generations removed in the case of children of um, slaves and slave owners. So what was transmitted to them had an impact on who they were and how they felt about the other side, even though they weren't alive during these historical incidents. That's why you cannot just surgically remove, shall we say, biases or opinions from people because it's, it's who they are and it's been transmitted. And that's why the science of diversity method is so needed and so valuable in situations where people have these strong emotional ties. Make sure you tune into our next episode where we'll talk about how the booming cannabis industry might actually be having a pretty significant impact on air quality. We, of course, also want to thank our partners. A big thanks to the Desert Research Institute and the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum, both of which are in Reno. They run the Science Distilled Lecture Series that this podcast is based on. I also need to thank the Hitchcock Project for visualizing science, uh, which supports this work. Until next time, I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Kathleen Masterson. Kathleen Masterson.